0: History is full of amazing stories and memorable people, but we don't care about them.
1: No hits, deep tracks only.
0: Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. I'm Phil, and each week I'll be joined by a friendly co-host to help me break down one of history's biggest moments and the forgotten people who made them happen. Hi, I'm Matt,
1: I'll be today's guest host, and like Phil, I'm no history expert.
0: We're just two regular people who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Sider. Today's B-Sider is the Beast of Chicago.
1: So during the last few years of the pandemic... Um, being stuck at home for the first bit of that. I know Jess and I had watched a lot of Netflix. Uh, we went through pretty much the whole library that they had. And one of the things that we did, um, was watch a lot of stuff about serial killers. I don't know why we got sucked in. Um, but we did. So true crime, I guess, has, has really taken off in a new way the last few years. Um, especially with, like I mentioned, the, the streaming services where it seems like Netflix and Hulu are just popping out all these Mm -hmm. new programs, um, Again and again about different things, and really we got sucked in for probably like three or three months at a time. I think where we'd watch nothing but serial killer in, uh, docs. Um, so we watched like the Ted Bundy tapes and extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile with Zach Efron. Are you really into that too, or did Jess kind of drag you into that? I'm, it, I'm just curious. It 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 started with with Jess being very interested. Um, so. She was watching a lot of, I think it's um, uh, Mindhunter, I think is what it was called. I don't think she she got all the way through. She was watching like Hannibal, that yeah. kind of stuff too. Um, and then I think we actually were talking to her sister and she had mentioned the Ted Bundy with Zac Efron. So we gave that a watch. And then, of course, from there, it's, it led us to the Ted Bundy tapes.
0: So like I'm not really into all the true crime murderer stuff. I think some of them are interesting. But Rita likes that stuff, too. And I i think that's just... I don't know why it is, but it seems to be a much more feminine-led category. I, I would probably agree with that. Like, even in podcasting, the, the My Favorite Murder podcast is, like, one of the most popular podcasts of all time. And it's the two women... I think they're comedians who... Have you ever listened to that? It's no, like, I haven't. It's two women. I think they're comedians, but they share all these, like, famous murder stories from various cities. I think they, like, pick one city that they will focus on and each tell a, a murder story from that city. And it really resonates with women for whatever reason. I mean, I think the, like, the easy trope is just that, like, women are obviously...
1: They're afraid of being Yeah, murdered. much more fearful of right. being
0: murdered themselves. And, like, right. they hear these other stories and, I don't know, it's either some sense of comfort or right. <laughs> ways to prepare yourself to make sure it doesn't happen to
1: you. And, and I don't know if it's it's the fact that, you know, my fiance and I kind of have analytical minds, and this is kind of a way to keep those minds sharp as we try to figure it out Yeah, um, along the way. But yeah, for some reason, she got sucked into it. And then before I knew it, I was sitting down every night after work, we're watching an episode <laughs> and then hoping we don't dream about it
0: yeah. in bed. Yeah, I, like I said, I've never really been into it. We've watched a couple things, like just little short videos that talk about, I don't know, murders that happened in various cities. Or she used to be into, I don't know if it was like CSI or one of those crime shows, but she likes, like, some of the shows that she really likes are like Psych and Monk and like the comedy crime shows that right. you kind of solve the puzzle as you watch it. They're not going to be gory, but they'll, yeah, right. Yeah, and I don't know, it's just for whatever reason, it, it's... Much more feminine led, but I think it's interesting. I just don't seek that stuff out myself.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I think after we watched all these, I haven't really sought it out myself again either. And of course, neither has really Jess. But we've been, you know, back getting back to normal yeah. the last couple of years. But I mean, we we would watch. I guess the the nice part about it was we could watch something that was dramatized, like the Zac Efron version, mm-hmm. and then we would watch the actual Ted Bundy tapes where it's his words the whole time oh. kind of explaining it. And so you can see kind of the differences between the two and you know, it's a dramatization, so they they kind of make things a little worse than right, they than yeah. they were they kind of flub some of the things <clears throat> so they, they weren't necessary necessarily what was actually happening. Yeah, for sure. And I guess so the 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 kind of thing that we got out of it was there's this new way to get all that information. Whereas when you people in those time periods were growing up and and they had to fear the Unabomber putting a bomb in their mailbox, or <laughs> they had to watch out for, um, for example, one of the things we watched was Manhunt Deadly Games with the Al- Atlanta Olympics. Um, so there's just this constant, you know, fear of when's the next thing going to happen. And I think the nice thing about it is from that we've kind of as a, an intelligence community for the country, they've really learned how to kind of build these profiles and look at um, the ways that they can identify killers before they strike so that we don't have these kind of incidents right. as much as we did. Because um, it looked like in the in the early 90s, you had a lot of moving pieces where nobody really knew who was doing what <laughs> and what was connected. And that's that's kind of where the manhunt, um, series came in with Unabomber and the
0: Deadly Games ones, as they were both pretty much the same time. Do you know, I, I'm not familiar with those backstories very much, like the Unabomber or the other one that you just said. Yeah, the uh, um, Eric Rudolph for the Atlanta Olympics, yeah. Can you summarize those, like, real briefly?
1: Yeah, so the, the Unabomber um, was, his his M.O. was essentially he would package a bomb and send it through the mail and then it would explode. And, mm-hmm. and so or, originally he would also kind of just place them places. And his whole thing was basically the technology that we have in the world is going to end us. So he was – his whole thing was that's like – That's probably true. Right. So, <laughs> you know, looking back on it now, it's like, you know, he does kind of have some points. But the way that he went about it was just insane. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what he was doing. And, and Eric Rudolph was more of a um, – he was more of like a recluse type. Um, I, w- I don't want to say like country boy, but like it was a it was in the South. It was a militia based type environment where it was just to get at somebody, and it was against America because they thought America was doing things wrong. So they decided to strike at these Olympics, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and so that's that's kind of those two were they're in one series. So you can kind of see whenever we would watch the actual tapes from the unabomber and you see okay well they kind of they kind of fudge that and made that up because they had to make it for tv but the the whole idea behind them was kind of the same was that there's these pieces of each person's um personality or things that they may have done in the past that may be able to tie them together and, and realize okay well this is a symptom or a sign that this uh, that a person could do this in the future okay and so that's that's kind of where the idea comes for these qualifications of a serial killer. Um, and, and a lot of it comes down to things like they have this lust for power, control. Um, sometimes that comes with like a predatory behavior. They're very charming and they have a really <laughs> good ability to manipulate and deceive yeah. people. It's creepy. You know, they've they've got narcissism. So that's one that, you know, Ted Bundy was known for was just look how good looking I am. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's why they picked Zac Efron to play him. They had to pick somebody. Um, but it, it's kind of these these generalities that they make to kind of tie people together. So if you look at more of the modern American examples, you know, going back through the 70s, you have John Wayne Gacy, who was pretty much just um, very predatory towards young males, where he would basically pretend he was going to show him a magic trick and then he would kill them. Oh, so he was known as the killer clown. Did he dress
0: up like a clown. Yeah, so
1: he actually did. So he would he would basically, you know, he would do like children's parties and then he would lure a child with a trick and mm-hmm. ended up he had 33 young males assaulted and murdered. Jeez. And then, you know, that that was in the 70s and and he was executed in 1994. So he was he was doing it for a while. Ted Bundy was your classic good-looking kid, law student, so you know, he's smart, he's very crafty. He would confess to the kidnapping, rape, and murder of 30 women. But some people think there's actually, you know, 100 or more that were never actually attributed to him. So he was executed in federal prison in 1989. Jeffrey Dahmer was another one. Um, So he was similar to kind of John Wayne Gacy where he would target young boys. So he has that predatory behavior. You know, addiction and impulsivity were kind of his calling cards. Um, He did some pretty out there stuff. Um, I don't really want to go into the weeds, but it was <laughs> This is the one that like ate people. Yeah, or something. necrophilia and cannibalism were yeah. kinda his thing. Um and, and he was he was a formy Me army medic. So, you know, that's where that was the first time somebody was like, Wait, like smart people are doing this because he was a phlebotomist too. So he had that knowledge of the body where he could if he wanted to make a certain cut to kill somebody right away, he could.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and that was kind of the first thought where Wow, these are actually smart people that are doing this. It's not just some deranged, crazy folk. (laughs) Um, And then that's where Ted Kaczynski kind of takes the cake on everything, where he's just this brilliant mastermind PhD in mathematics. You know, he just decided one day that he had just had enough of this, the transgressions of the American um, community and this technology that they were, you know, working on. And so he ended up killing three people and injuring 23 others in this nationwide bombing campaign. Um, and, and he ended up moving to an isolated cabin in Montana and just becoming a recluse Jeez. while still sending out these bombs. So he would even take bus rides to San Francisco to put a package in the mail so that it would throw off the scent of where he was. Wow. Ironically, he was actually found by the FBI because he had released this manifesto. He sent it directly to some newspapers and his sister-in-law looked at it and said to her husband, his brothers, and, hey, I think this kind of sounds like your brother, Ted. <laughs> and so they they ended up, um, you know, turning him into the FBI. They thought it sounded a little bit like him, and it became the longest, most expensive investigation in FBI history. And he's currently still alive. He's in federal prison. But he's been in there ever since
0: 1995. So, so what I'm learning from this is don't trust smart, charming people. Yes, that generally and
1: that's the thing is a lot of people think that when those things were happening it was just some crazy person but whenever you look back it's like these people are actual geniuses in some
0: cases i mean we talked this isn't the first time we've talked about serial killers on history's b-side we did an episode uh last fall i think with elizabeth bathory and that was way way back in history like that was i think 16th century Hungary and that we actually had the girls from Fancy Town Crimes on that podcast another female led true crime <laughs> podcast but you notice some of kind of the same things where she's targeting very specific people and that was a whole different story where she maybe wasn't a serial killer it might have been some kind of political bias against her making up the stories but these are obviously like proven cases and it's really interesting not that any of this is good, obviously. But right, right. It's interesting that you can like pick up on these tendencies and start to kind of understand how these people operate to recognize them and hopefully help solve some of the cases too.
1: Right. It's, it's all basically a big risk assessment that the, you know, that these people are doing is to try to figure out if we can stop something before it happens by just figuring out, oh, these things may lead to somebody doing that. Then, you know, we've, we've come a long way in that regard. But the the thing with that is while we have some of those new uh, technologies and everything like DNA testing, you know that's gone a, a very long way mm-hmm. in terms of how we identify and capture people. But the real idea is, what about before we had any of that? So what about way back when, when the only way to get that information was through anything that went out in the media? through the, the newspapers. You know, this is before Twitter. This is before Facebook.
0: The fake news media helps yes. crack these cases.
1: E- essentially, that's what they had to rely on. It was that <laughs> and a lot of luck. Yeah. Um, it was just you happen to see some guy run out of a building and it turns out that that building burnt down 10 minutes later. You know, and, and that's the thing is back before we had any surveillance videos or social media, it was just what can I gather? How lucky
0: can I get was a lot of how they they solved a lot of those cases. So this would be trusting a lot of the evidence that you received, like maybe not even found evidence, like from law enforcement officers that were searching the case or whatever, they would have informants and just regular civilians come to them and say, oh, hey, I saw this guy do this, or this person looks suspicious. And that probably led to a lot of arrests would be my guess, like maybe some illegitimate arrests yeah
1: there there and that was certainly the problem way back when was they were just throwing you know throwing things at the wall to see what stuck <laughs> essentially that's what it was and and it was it was the early form of trying to do this behavioral analysis and trying to figure out specific things mm-hmm. that might tend that might cause somebody but a lot of it was like oh okay well this person was stabbed so let's look at people that use knives okay let's look at butchers. <laughs> And see if any of those, you know, seem like they might
0: fit. <laughs> I mean, from we're obviously looking from a modern perspective right. back at it, but that just seems so sketchy for lack of evidence to build cases against people.
1: Right. And, and you know, even today, we still rely on tips to the FBI for a right. lot of things. But back then, it was more of a, just a crapshoot of. You might get something, you might not, and that's why there's cold cases that, that a lot of people probably
0: got away with these types of murders and right other
1: crime too. Right, and and you know, there's different. You know, it's a lot easier to get away with something way back when, whenever you had right. you know, less eyes in the sky like we do now with all the surveillance video and everything.
0: Yeah, that is crazy. I I think in general, maybe there are more crazy people that exist today too. Maybe that's not totally accurate, but they certainly have more means to do some crazy, terrible things. Right. Um, but hopefully, we're getting a little bit better at catching the crazies. Yeah,
1: and... <laughs> I think I think I think that's a good point. Is we have the ability to catch more of them. So even if there are more of them, hopefully, we're keeping pace at least. They just seem to be getting more and more dramatic too. <laughs> well, and that's yeah, that's the thing with all the new tech that they have. They have a lot more at their disposal too. Yeah. Do those kinds of things. So with all that being said, let's just travel back to the mid-19th century and look at the first serial killer in America. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break.
0: We'll be right back. As a listener of History's B-Side, we know you're eager to get back to the delightful, endlessly positive task that is studying history. Oh, it's always so delightfully positive. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode.
1: So, in in keeping with the Chicago theme from the episode of last week, <laughs> last week, Easy Eddie. Um, we're going to talk about Herman Webster Mudgett, who was the first serial killer in America.
0: I feel like if your name is Mudgett, you're destined to become a serial killer. Yeah, but he
1: changed it, so that's the interesting.
0: Yeah, thing. but that's his name. You grew up Herman Webster Mudgett. That's true. Your parents what probably else are you didn't do help in you life. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. His his parents didn't do him any favors.
1: So there's no one listening to this podcast named <laughs> Mudgett, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> we are sorry if so. So he was actually nicknamed the Beast of Chicago. You can tell he was kind of an unsavory person to have around. Um, But way back when, before he became the Beast, he actually, you know, he may not have been a bad guy. So born in 1861, Herman Webster Mudgett was born in New Hampshire as the third of five children into an extremely devout Methodist family. So he had a pretty normal upbringing, but some of his attempts to tie him to bad things that he did whenever he was younger include torturing animals and and having an abusive father. Um,
0: But a lot of those claims are pretty unfounded. Is that just because they know how his story ends, that he would turn into a serial killer, so of course he had to have
1: bad traits as a child? Yeah, the bad traumas are pretty, you know obvious thing that they point to a lot but i think a lot of that is you know revisionist history yeah where it's not necessarily causing him to do the things that he did right um and it, i mean it was said that he was also fascinated with skeletons and death at an early age but that could just be why he decided to pursue
0: a career in medicine <laughs> this is totally unrelated but um another podcast friend that people who've listened to the show know james reed has his science night podcast and I was listening to it and they interviewed a scientist that I don't remember exactly what he did. Some with crocodiles, but they asked him how he got into the field, and he was like, "Oh, as a kid, I loved dead animals." <laughs> it's right, like that seems like a red flag. <laughs> it, it's
1: it's a red flag, but as long as it doesn't become any more than that, you're you're fine. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's you stay a scientist and not <laughs> right. As long as you're not using it for bad. Right, that's good. You're a superhero. Otherwise, it's fine. <laughs> so the baby beast, as as we'll call him at this point. Um, He graduated high school at 16, so he graduated early, and he married his first wife, Clara Lovering, um, the following year. So that would have been um, 1878, and then two years later, he had his first child, Robert. So two years after that, in 1882, Herman enrolled at the University of Michigan Medical School, where he then graduated in 1884, uh, without really showing any strange signs. Nothing good ever comes out of the University of Michigan. I can 100% agree with that. (laughs) So while he was at Michigan, he apprenticed under the chief anatomy instructor, um, who was a pretty big advocate of human dissection. So he was around cadavers a lot. And so what he actually ended up doing was um, he would steal the cadavers and then burn and disfigure them. And then he would use that to collect the insurance money um, from policies which he just took out on those dead cadavers. And so he actually confessed to that after being caught and questioned by police, but nothing really came of it. it seems like odd behavior,
0: even if he isn't a serial killer. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing like being desensitized to dead bodies, but still like to go through all that. This is, you know more about insurance than I do. <laughs> this is insurance fraud,
1: right? A hundred percent. I would say that was insurance <laughs> fraud. Um, and, and the most surprising thing of all that was that they never really cared that he did it um like he didn't do any extreme jail time or anything like that for those was insurance
0: fraud like a big crime then
1: i i don't think it was just because of the idea of insurance as we think of it today it's a lot different than it was back then
0: and probably they have a lot more work goes into insurance investigation than or today than it would have then.
1: right i think again it goes back to Way back then, you know, crimes were more of just uh, how can I, you know, can I get lucky and, and figure out what's going <laughs> on. I mean, he, he did confess to those, but um, much later. But that was that was really after he was suspected of murder on those. So. <laughs> and at that it, point, who cares about insurance? Right. <laughs> and at that point, it was it was you know not a big deal. So, post graduation, he takes his wife and they move to New Hampshire, and um, there's that's when things start to trickle out where some housemates described him as abusive. He would have little to no contact um, with his wife shortly after that. Hmm. So she just kind of disappeared. So after that first marriage failed in 1884, he bounced around to a few different places and everywhere he went, kind of a dark cloud followed him and he seemed to be under some sort of scrutiny. So the first place that he was at was Moore's Forks in New York. And a young boy just Happened to disappear um, and was never found after he was last seen with with Holmes So that was kind of the first instance where people thought that was a little weird, but nothing. Do you know who the
0: boy was? No, okay.
1: Yeah, so from what I saw it was just, you know, this young boy disappears. He was last seen with Holmes Um, so after that, you know incident skips town again goes to Philadelphia And um, he gets this job at a drugstore because, you know, that's what medical students do after they graduate. Mm -hmm. Um, And this boy just mysteriously dies after he gets medicine purchased at that drugstore.
0: So these, I mean, two incidents from our, the way we look at serial killers now, we're noticing a pattern with two young boys. Um, Were they questioned at the time or did it take until people knew everything years later to kind of realized that they might be part of his pattern of behavior?
1: I think general suspicions maybe, but given the fact that back then you had to rely on newspapers, there was no social media, it was it was easy to skip town and kind of create a new life and have nobody know. So mm-hmm. I, I think more of it was they were just kind of seen as one-offs and totally separate because there was no way to connect the two. Mm-hmm. So in 1885, Herman decides, uh, my parents have ruined my life enough, I'm going to go ahead and change my name. So that's where he changes it to Henry Howard, or H.H. Holmes, and he moved to Chicago. So that's how this all fits in. And Chicago is where his life just gets way more interesting. So now with um, Clara kind of out of the picture... He marries Murda Belknap in 1886 during the divorce proceedings with Clara. And he cites infidelity, which was never actually finalized. So his first wife, he never actually divorced. Oh. His uh, third wife, Georgiana Yoke, and I, I say third wife, because he really never actually divorced the prior two. So Murda and Clara are both technically still married to him when he marries Georgiana in 1894. <laughs> this guy uh, got around a bit. And... Well, and I, I think that goes back to the <laughs> the being very charming, yeah. and being able to convince people what you would like.
0: Not even just getting around, like he's marrying these women.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and really, for, you know, from everything I saw, it was, okay, so what happened to Murda? And they were just like,
0: oh, she just went away. It's no big deal. <laughs> Ladies, find you a man like H.H. H. Holmes who can settle down and commit Yes, he's, he is not letting that marriage not work. To be fair, though, he didn't kill them, which is... Was...
1: Well, and he didn't get divorced. <laughs> so really, he's you know he's a stand-up gentleman yeah. at this point. He just has three wives. So now we're in 1886, and H.H. begins working at an, yet another drugstore that was actually owned by a former Michigan alumnus. So he got the hookup there. <laughs> and he actually became the owner of the drugstore after the owners passed. So that's where things may have been getting a little um, questionable in Chicago um, because it was rumored that he had murdered the wife after the husband had passed, but that was never verified. So he wasn't really under scrutiny there.
0: Was it rumored at the time or rumored years later after everything about his story is known?
1: At the time, I think there were suspicions because of how new he was to the area. Um, And and again, looking back now, it's, it's clear that he probably was the one to do it. And I think the fact that the boy in Philadelphia had died while he was working at a drugstore, you know, kind of points toward
0: that possibility. Yeah, we're noticing the patterns now.
1: Right. So now is, is where you kind of get the real story of the beast. Um, so after he, he buys that drugstore, later that year, he notices that there's this empty lot across the street and they started building a mixed-use building that had some retail spaces and then a new drugstore and some apartments in it. And so that would have been in 1887. So while that drugstore and the retail space is being built, he decides that he's just going to stop making payments to some architects, so they, they sued him. And he would also hire and fire a lot of the crews that were working on it because he wanted to kind of keep this mixed-use building a secret in terms of what it actually was.
0: What uh what was his plan for this mixed use building? So, keep in secret. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna
1: keep that a secret for right now. Okay. <laughs> but essentially what it was was just his his own space to kind of become the beast. And so this is this has been kind of coined a couple different uh names. So it's been called a murder castle, and it's also been called the Beast Labyrinth. So after it gets Completed in 1891. The creditor for the building dies. Nobody knows if HH was involved in that. He has this three story building across from that drugstore where the following year in 1892, he decides he wants to have it act as a hotel because the 1982 World's Columbian Exposition or the World's Fair was coming to Chicago. So the plan for that was to have a storefront on the first floor so it just appeared normal. The second floor was a set of torture rooms, which would have secret chutes that would go down <laughs> to the basement. The third floor was a maze with halls and soundproof rooms um, to take care of his victims. <laughs> and the basement had some vats of acid and a crematorium, which he would call his lab. So that, that kind of goes back to the fact that he has all this medical training, so he would you know, ideally have... The training to get rid of these bodies in a proper way without being suspected of anything.
0: This I feel like these floors are out of order because wouldn't you want the maze of halls before you get to the torture rooms... <laughs> So the, the maze of halls was on the third floor, which he put
1: out as a hotel for the World's Fair. So he could get unsuspecting people send him to the third floor, say, your room is down that way. Oh. And they, they would wander around and end up in these <laughs> other rooms, and then he could take care of them. Good so like, that, was, that was his whole thing, was setting up this, this building to just be a giant labyrinth to confuse a lot of people. Um, so there would be trap doors, peepholes, dead-end stairways. Um, there there are a lot of different things that he did to make sure that whoever went in there probably wasn't coming out alive. And so he would use things like suffocation with chloroform or lighting gas fumes. Airless vaults were a big thing that he used. Mm-hmm. Um, he would also use starvation and then just burn people alive as well. <laughs> so he's really just has no remorse for any of the things <laughs> that he's doing in this labyrinth. The psychopath. Right, and, and that's the thing is is that's where again? It's a really smart person, so you, you know, you wouldn't expect them to do that, but they're putting that intelligence to something insane like this. And down in the lab, he would have you know the dissecting table, a stretching rack. So oh. if you think the medieval stretching yeah. <laughs> scenes, it's those kind of torture machines that it just and a crematory that he had, um, where he would just take those bodies down there and do what he needed to do. And one of those things that he would do would take those skeletons and actually just sell them to schools oh. so he was making money off of the people that he would murder yeah
0: oh geez that's gross yeah so he's
1: he's got a lot of a lot of creepy things going on in this labyrinth have
0: you read much edgar Allan poe very little this reminds me of the house of usher if you've ever read that
1: with the heartbeat under the floor is
0: that that no no that's a different one. that's telltale heart yeah yeah yeah. the house of usher i believe it's been a long time since i've read it but it's kind of like this same type of horror house type thing where there's lots of stuff that can kill you
1: (laughs) right and the the thing that is i guess fascinating i don't want to seem like i'm a big fan of this guy but (laughs) the fascinating part was that he had all of these different ways to do it Mm-hmm. And he wasn't just, you know, a one trick pony. He really was. Well, yeah, showing. you
0: get bored of the same. Right. And I, I think that's
1: part of it was he was just like, OK, let's see what I can do now. Because um, he would, you know, he could switch up the rooms too, however he wanted you yeah. know, in case people started catching on. And so the way that he would get people into that murder hotel or murder castle was he would place ads in the papers. Offering some lodging to particularly the young women. Um, where he would act as a rich bachelor and just say, hey, you know, you can come stay here. And
0: he was charming.
1: Right. And so that, that goes back to like the Ted Bundy. You know, you think of he has that. He's got the intelligence that the Unabomber had. So you can see how these things kind of tie together. Um, and and one thing that he would do, which I'm not surprised he did it given what happened at Michigan. But he would have all of his employees, guests, you know, fiancés, wives, they had to have a life insurance policy that was his that was his absolute have to have and so surprisingly or maybe unsurprisingly a lot of them just started to disappear right after that paper paperwork went
0: through checking into the hotel you need you know the credit card for your room and a copy of your life insurance policy well and brief. your ID and your ID of course oh, yeah, you yeah. need
1: to make sure you have that and you're over you know, a certain
0: age to... just sign everything into <laughs> into HH Holmes before you get your room key right
1: exactly you have to and and so that's in With that, you know, luring in these young women, he naturally started to date some of them. (laughs) Um, And, you know, in in 1891, he had this mistress. um, And, of course, at this point, they're all mistresses because he has three wives. Do not forget that part. Yeah,
0: he ran out of money for more weddings.
1: Right. So he just, he's having these mistresses, and mysteriously, one of them disappears with her young daughter on Christmas Day in 1891. Hmm. H.H. claimed that, she had died during an abortion, but that was never actually confirmed. Um, and then again in December of the following year, another mistress, Emmeline Sigrand, just happened to disappear after working for Holmes for six months. And there was another—it um, was not anybody he was actually romantically involved with, but Edna Van Tassel um, was staying in the murder castle and also just vanished, and they believe that she was yet another victim of H.H. H. Holmes.
0: Have you seen pictures of this guy?
1: Yeah, he. I, I don't understand it. He's got this mustache and this top <laughs> hat. Those are the ones about. I always see. <laughs> and it, it's the same thing with, like, Ted Bundy. People are like, oh, he was so cute. And I'm like, I don't see
0: it. From today's standards, I don't think he would be a particularly attractive bachelor. Right.
1: Well, money but helps a lot.
0: Yeah. I just the pictures are funny because he does have that, like, I don't even know what style hat you would call that, but he has a very distinct mustache as yes. well and just... I don't know. Kind of but, a weird looking guy from our perspective. Yeah.
1: And again, you know, this is the 1800s. We're not, you know, it's a different look. Yeah, for but sure. But maybe, maybe that was the thing back in those days. <laughs> so as you can see just from his murder castle, you know, he's very demonic in terms of how he would go about what he did. Mm-hmm. You know, he was knowingly luring people. He set them up. He built this entire thing over four years to make sure that it would be able to kill people. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, as if he wasn't a trashy person enough at that, um, he had some other adventures that are not necessarily related to the hotel that also were pretty unsavory. During the hotel's construction, he was doing some traveling with, um, Benjamin Pitezal. And so what their job was, was just to commit a bunch of insurance scams across the country. <laughs> so this was, this was kind of like, you know, while I've got this murder castle going on, I still need some extra money. Yeah, you gotta so let's fund do this. It. <laughs> so, Patezel was this carpenter that he had actually known him from a previous construction job. And so he became Holmes's right hand man. So, in 1893, this is, you know, before a lot of the other stuff, but after the murder castle had been built, their scam was to sign a Texas property deed over to Patezel from Holmes' assistant, Minnie Williams. And then what they were going to do was later transfer that to Patezel. So it really didn't work out that way um, because of, I guess, Minnie's family kind of stepping in, where Minnie's sister Annie was visiting them. And neither of the Williamses were ever seen alive after July of 1893. So they, they mysteriously disappear right after this whole, you know, deed was signed over. Then again, the next year in 1894, Holmes is out there selling some mortgage goods in St. Louis. And he basically got caught where he concocted this fake death insurance scam of Marion Hedgepeth. Um, whom he had met in jail previously. <laughs> so, again, not exactly the, the nicest guys that he's hanging around with. And he was going to cut in hedgepath on this as long as it worked out. So insurance companies got pretty suspicious of the fake death, didn't pay out. So that one didn't actually work. So after that fails, Holmes gets this brilliant idea to go back to his other guy, Patezel, and say, hey, you should fake your death. <laughs> but in Philadelphia, so that they don't suspect anything. However, Holmes ended up killing him. Sounds like he just got impatient. I mean, at this point, probably, right? (laughs) His other schemes aren't working. (laughs) Right, you know, you just get frustrated after one scheme fails and and it just goes wrong. So after he kills Patezel, he says, well, I got to do something about his wife and kids. So he sweet talks Patezel's wife to give three of the children, they had five at the time, three of the five children to Holmes, and he said, I will meet you in Canada. So what Holmes did with these three kids was he said, okay, we're going to go to Canada, you take this route, I'll take this other route, and I will meet you there. But what he really did was kill those three children. So two of the children, he locked them into a trunk and pumped gas into them until they, they died. The other one that he had was killed in Indianapolis along the way, which he gave he gave the child pills and then burned them in a chimney at the house they were staying at.
0: I'm just really surprised at how many people trusted him. Like, he married and dated all these women despite all his suspicious activities and behaviors, and people just kind of went along with it.
1: Well, I, I think that's what makes him the typical serial killer. You know, he's got that charm to, to take care of the women <laughs> He's got the money, he's got the intelligence from his schooling. So he's really got this this way about him to convince, you know, people to trust him and that he's a trustworthy guy and then at the same time, you know, escape all of the the backlash from it.
0: I'm also just baffled at this woman giving 3 of her 5
1: children to him. <laughs> I I mean, they knew each other for a long time, so she probably felt safe with him. I still don't understand how you could physically do that unless they were just a handful.
0: <laughs> I don't know maybe maybe it's an age difference thing like some of the kids were younger and yeah I think I think he took some of the older ones with him because okay. they were
1: easier to travel so you know it, it does come off as a hey I'm trying to help you out as a single mother now because I killed your husband but you don't know that <laughs> type thing how
0: do you come back and say like oh I don't know what happened to those three kids that you gave me like they're gone well
1: yeah and that's the thing is I I don't think he ever actually I mean he made it to Toronto because that's where he buried two of the children hmm. But I don't think he ever, you know, met up with with her, obviously. And so after all of that, that puts us in 1894. And so we go back to that scheme that he had with, with Hedgepeth, um, where he was going to cut Hedgepeth in if he faked his death. So that's where the reason that he went and did all those things to Tezel was because Hedgepeth was like, I- I'm not so sure about this. Mm-hmm. And so... At that time, Hedgepath decides to just reveal this scam to the police. And so they start tracking Holmes. And so, you know, tracking people back in this time, it's not like today where we can, you know, ping a cell phone and they can find you <laughs> pretty easily. Or, you know, there's not there's not multiple avenues to track. You just, right. It's all based on what you hear and right. people just seeing him. So that's where Chicago police began investigating his castle to see if they could get any more clues. And so while they were there, what they discovered were the false walls and doors, the secret passages, the gas pipelines, everything that he was using as part of this murder castle. They were, you know, slowly uncovering once they were finally able to get in there. And so these investigations just happened to spread into Indianapolis, where he had taken one of the children, as well as Toronto, where the other two were found. So they were pretty much on to him. Um, and they actually, in Toronto, they did find the bodies of Patezel's children, and then they linked that to Holmes, specifically. Hmm. So, that was kind of the big, you know, we've got a big problem here. This is, <laughs> we finally have something yeah. together. So, eventually, in Boston, in November of 1894, they catch Holmes, and he confesses to the murders of Patezel's children, as well as another 30 murders. So... The actual count of his escapades, they believe it to be about 200 people, oh, but wow. they can't determine that because he had just mutilated the bodies <laughs> as much as he had. So in 1895, he gets sentenced to death for the murder of Benjamin Patezel and was hanged on May 7th of 1896.
0: Really just one murder is what they... Right. So that's the <laughs> most
1: surprising thing is that really they just charge him with murder. But at, at that point, a murder of one person was a hanging. So yeah, you know it was probably oh
0: you still see today like people get
1: thirty thirty of life death sentences, sentences yeah. and
0: whatever, but
1: yeah I think because because anyway. they knew you were going to hang right, yeah. and so that's the thing is is he had committed all these terrible crimes, and as this terrible person starts to come out of the woodwork and they look back on it, you just you just think how many more of these unsolved cases were actually this guy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so before he was hung, of course he's going to try and. Get out of any of this. So he he actually attempted to claim possession by Satan. That makes sense, right? I mean, if your nickname is the Beast, and maybe that's why they called him the Beast was because he you know said he was possessed by Satan, or it was more likely just because he was such an evil person.
0: I mean, I don't know if you would have come across this in your research, but do you think there was any like psychological issues that he really had, like some kind of mental illness that he really maybe thought he was possessed by Satan?
1: Yeah, I don't. I didn't see anything. That doesn't mean it doesn't
0: exist. Yeah. Um. Obviously, like mental health was not. Yeah, they were we not didn't have the understanding of it. You didn't, didn't have to wash today. your hands
1: more than once a week back then, so <laughs> it was, you know, it was it was not at the forefront. But looking back on it now, you see, you know, that could definitely be a possibility because we know that that's that has happened in more of the modern uh, serial killers as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone who uh, is killing for joy right like not having some kind of mental issue
1: yeah and the you know the thing that would be nice if we had had that technology back then was to go and look at that brain like they do nowadays Mm -hmm. where they just try to see you know is there something going on physically here right that could cause it and so when he's you know getting ready to be hung a lot of people noticed that he was you know pretty calm about it he didn't have much anxiety, which I would be exactly the opposite if I was possessed by Satan. I don't know about you. Um, and and he also asked to be buried ten feet deep instead of the standard six feet because he was afraid that they were going to dissect him. So <laughs> coming full circle, <laughs> right? So we get this kind of full circle moment where that projection happens, where he's like, "Oh no, they're going to do to me what I did to all these yeah, people." He
0: definitely had some like deep rooted things from his past. Right.
1: And that's that's where you kind of wonder if it was, if there's something more to his time at Michigan where something happened yeah. um, or if it was just, you know, being around cadavers all the time. Yeah. And so he eventually dies a slow death by strangulation, which is fitting given how that's how he had a lot of his victims <laughs> in his murder castle. And so that kind of wraps up the story of H.H. Of H. Holmes. But a lot of people wonder kind of, what do we do with that building afterwards? Yeah. And so it actually was gutted by a fire um, shortly after H.H. was arrested. And so what they did was, let's turn this into a post office. So it remained a post office up <laughs> until 1938. So nearly, you know, 40
0: years. That also feels kind of fitting. Yeah. What's worse? Right. at <laughs> The murder council or the post office? <laughs> right.
1: You're both basically, you feel like you're going to die in both places. lot <laughs> of the cases. And so, with that being said, you know, you kind of get the idea of the first look at America's first serial killer. You know, you get the is the backstory to him the reason, or is it just us revising history to make it fit? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we see kind of how the havoc that he wreaked over that period at the end of the 19th century, you know, was just everything was up in the air. Nobody really knew what was going on. And, and, Information was so precious at the time that they had no idea. So, you know, America's going on with this in the late 1800s, but at the same time, so is London. And a lot of people, I guess, including myself, didn't realize the time period where, at the exact same time that H.H. H. Holmes was just destroying people's lives in right. Chicago, Jack the Ripper was doing the same thing. <laughs> And,
0: the famous serial killer right <laughs> of so that's the time that's period.
1: that's the interesting thing about it is whenever we think serial killer like the first serial killer in the world a lot of people just think oh jack the ripper for sure you know and he's shrouded in all this mystery and that's because he was really worldwide at that point mm-hmm. because he was the first one and everything that he became was basically shared by this fascinated media over there where this is the first time that we think something's going on that we've never seen before so whenever they're reporting on it they're also adding in you know just this general fascination with all of it and so jack the ripper um you know was in london in 1888 where he kind of focused on or is more famously known um for female prostitutes and their murders in the poor east end of london The deaths that they had were similar, I guess, in severity that H.H. Holmes would do. Mm -hmm. Um, They would have very brutal deaths. They would, a lot of it was mutilation. So there would be these distinct cuts on the throat. He would remove some organs and all of that. And that's where there was the suggestion that he had some knowledgeable and medical surgical techniques, you know, in his toolkit to use on these women. And so, There was a three-year period where 11 murders were thought to be connected, and that's where this thought of the canonical five, which occurred between August 31st and November 9th of 1988, were considered the most closely linked of all of those.
0: Can you explain what that canonical five means? Yeah, so the
1: canonical five were these five murders, they're all very early on, obviously, Um, And they were all really similar in how they were done. So there were these very similar cuts. They all had very similar mutilations, and it it was very precise in how it was done and how similar they were. So it wasn't, it clearly wasn't somebody just going over with a baseball bat and bashing somebody Mm -hmm. on one side of the head, and then the next time they use an axe. So the fact that these first five Murders were very similar, were the first signs to the cops that hey, this could be one person doing this. It's probably not a group. A repeat crime. Right. Of... It, yeah. It's not it's not a copycat. Yeah. It's the actual guy. And so those those murders were never actually solved, but that legend of Jack the Ripper from those is what continues to be a a topic of discussion, you know, today.
0: So Jack the Ripper is a pretty well known legend i guess in history as far as when we talk about serial killers like this right is he a real person like is there a jack the ripper or is it just this kind of legend that a lot of these types of acts were attributed to
1: yeah so they they actually don't know they don't they never found jack the ripper Mm -hmm. so this is this is one thing where they they have all this information to work from but again, back back in those days, they don't have the way to kind of piece it all together. So they're actually, the investigations for these, you know, they spanned years and years. They talked to, you know, over 2,000 people, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and, and like I had mentioned earlier, what they did was kind of think of, okay, well, this guy uses knives a lot. He's got some surgical training, it looks like. So they were looking at things like, you know, butchers or slaughterers. And then surgeons and physicians as their main starting points, because that's all they, you know, they could go off of that. So what ended up coming from all of these was the creation of that earliest offender profile based on those murders. And that's the idea that we have behind this, you know, what makes a serial killer a serial killer. Right. So that's where they, they look at the consistent method of killing, the solitary habits Um, You know, the periodic attack, like manic attacks that they would have. So something's wrong with their brain. You know, pleasure from the act, obviously, because you don't (laughs) do this if you're not enjoying it. And so that's where at the same time that Jack the Ripper is running through London, slicing people's throats, we have the same thing going on with H.H. Holmes. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what gets lost in history is because Jack the Ripper, I guess, is more well-known even though HH H. Holmes had way more murders and is in, you know, the country that we're in, we would expect to know more about him. Yeah, that's a good point. But we don't. And I think that's where kind of the the mystery surrounding the Beast of Chicago is really what makes his story interesting.
0: So, do you feel confident to answer some quiz questions on your topic here? Um, we will see. I am not super <laughs> confident. You'll do fine. <laughs> I don't. I mean, they might be a little challenging, but I don't think anything's too terribly difficult. I'm just glad that you've missed all three before. So <laughs> oh <you>. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all the time. That's that's my calling card here. <laughs> all right, so we'll take a quick break and then we'll get into your quiz today. All right. We like to end every episode with a short three question quiz to test today's host, kind of see how much he studied around his topic and maybe you, the listener knows something about this and you can play along while you're tuning in. This is where I like to beat up my guest hosts and see how much yeah, they I'm not, I'm actually not so get sure on about their this topic. one. <laughs> it's I don't think they're terribly difficult, but they're they might challenge you a bit. There's one that's about the World's Fair nope that's not i can tell you no it's not that specific is it corn
1: dogs is the answer corn dogs the
0: answer is not corn dogs i have no idea were corn dogs big at the world's fair or are you thinking county fair
1: no i'm pretty (laughs) sure it was corn oh um wasn't like popcorn invented at like the st louis world's fair or something don't quote me on that
0: i don't know i i was going to talk about this when we got into the question but i think the world's fairs are like a super interesting part of history. They sound really cool, but I know like a, a ton of in- incredible stuff in history yeah. happened at them or were inspired by them. So I feel like I need to read more about World's Fairs and yeah. what went on there. Yeah,
1: especially because we don't have them anymore. That They, yeah. they kind of are like a lost artifact of history.
0: I feel like we have them, but not to the scale that they were. Right. Like any kind of big expose that we have today is very niche and I don't know, it doesn't draw the people that these did and have the kind of amazing spectacle. Right. That was a weird digression. (laughs) I'll just get into the question. (laughs) It's called distraction and it's working. (laughs) It's just delaying you getting these questions. (laughs) All right. So the Chicago World's Fair, which took place in 1893, was held as a celebration of the 400th anniversary of what event? 1593.
1: Three right, so that would put that's four. Or wow, that was bad. Fourteen ninety-three is that the Columbus finding America, right? It has to be
0: correct. Yes. <laughs> All right. So the actual name of it was the World's Columbian Exposition, which you mentioned in the episode. Oh, I wasn't sure if you picked up. On I was that. <laughs> very confused why
1: they called it the Columbian Exposition. Yeah, but that makes sense now.
0: It was named that because it was celebrating the four hundredth anniversary of Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World. Which was actually in fourteen ninety two, but close enough. They like unveiled the World's Fair in fall of eighteen ninety two, but it didn't actually open to the public until sometime I think spring of eighteen ninety three. Yeah. Maybe summer eighteen ninety three. Anyway, I do have a bonus question relevant to this for you. To see I guess test your knowledge of Chicago, since we just did back to back episodes about Chicago. Um a lot of the buildings that were built for the World's Fair were actually constructed for temporary use and then torn down after the fact. There are still two buildings that exist today that were constructed for the World's Fair. I'll give you the names of them at the time. It was the Palace of Fine Arts and the World's Congress Auxiliary Building. Neither of them have the same name today in Chicago. Can you name either one? Your hint is that we... Did not go to either of them when oh, we were man, there in and the fall, doesn't... but we did walk past one of them.
1: Okay, so it's definitely not Willis Tower. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> way too modern. <laughs> oh man, um, is one of the is one of them the aquarium?
0: No. Okay. Yeah. Then I. Have but learned. you're fairly. And you're in the same you're area. Wrong. Yeah. I. I'm blanking. Okay, so the the Palace of Fine Arts actually turned into the Fields Columbian Museum, um, which is today known as the Fields Museum of Natural History. Right. That museum actually relocated in 1920, so the building that still exists now houses the Museum of Science and Industry, which is in the same like museum park that the aquarium is in and oh, okay. the Field Museum and Soldier Field and everything down there. That was close. Yeah, you were very close on that one. The other one, which we didn't go to, but we walked past when we were in Chicago recently, uh, the World's Congress Auxiliary Building was built as a partnership with the Art Institute of Chicago, which now resides in that building. So yeah. that's the one that's in, I think it's Grant Park. Okay. Uh, it's pretty close to like the Bean and across from Michigan Avenue there. So that's that's the other building that still exists from the World's Fair. That was a bonus question. I just thought it was uh, interesting about <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> we'll get back into your other two quiz questions here. But you got that right. You got credit for it. You're one for one. Sweet. (laughs) Your last two questions are more relevant to H.H. Holmes, or at least his story. Um, So, Holmes, you mentioned, was finally arrested in Boston on November 17th, 1894. He was held on an outstanding warrant from Texas for what crime? I would
1: probably guess insurance fraud. Is
0: incorrect. Is not. Wow. That's surprising. It is a weird one. Horse theft. Horse theft. <laughs> yes. Okay. Apparently he was accused of horse theft, which made police suspicious that he was planning to flee the country. Oh, yeah. And that's part of why they started to pursue him.
1: I guess, yeah, that's kind of one of your choices to flee a country <laughs> back then was a horse. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes sense. All right. Interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then your final question is, um, Not so much about Holmes, but about the story around him. The reports of the murder castles, secret torture chamber, trap doors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium are largely chalked up to what kind of colorful type of news reporting. Ooh, It's a specific term for a kind of news reporting. Exposé. Oh, sorry, your hint was colorful type of news reporting.
1: I thought that was a pun, but I wasn't
0: sure. Um, I I got nothing. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) the term is yellow press or yellow journalism. Um, And this is kind of stemming from what you talked about, how there wasn't necessarily evidence or research into it beyond what was reported by the media. Uh, But yellow press or journalism generally refers to newspapers that present illegitimate or poorly researched news and rather, they offer eye popping, sensational headlines, exaggerations, and scandal mongering, which helps increase their sales. So, the National Enquirer before that. Yeah, it's like tabloids okay, and okay, like tabloids. other not very reputable media. So, that kind of lended a lot of the more glamorized, fantastical side of H.H. H. Holmes' story. Right. Not really sure how much of it is actually factual, although I think we can believe that he was a pretty bad dude with some pretty yeah unlike last unlike last week i'm pretty sure we're on the same page of where this guy stands but this i kind of thought of this yellow press as like old-timey clickbait yeah
1: (laughs) that's that's a very good way to put it yeah
0: it's just like he obviously did some bad stuff but they maybe exaggerated it in the in the reports for the sake of getting people to buy newspapers (laughs) right that and the in
1: the persona of you know The beast is going to catch people's eyes a lot more than anything else.
0: And that's, I think some of the stuff that we talked about too, where like the murders that maybe happened early in his life, maybe were murders, maybe they weren't. But because of what his story turned into, it was easy to
1: accuse him of those as well. Right. They just, they just assumed that, okay, it was definitely him then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you got one right, so that wasn't hey, too bad. Yeah, one,
1: one out of three, I'm happy. And I had, like, a, I'll give myself a quarter, quarter of the bonus question. <laughs> yeah,
0: there you go. <laughs> I really try to stump you on some of these. And
1: I'm you did, you I'm okay. very
0: pleased with getting one, so I'm happy. <laughs> and we are in agreement that H.H. H. Holmes was Absolutely, not a great guy. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah.
1: Not not a great guy. Would not invite him to a barbecue, that's for sure. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you guys for listening to another episode of History's B-Side. Thank you, Matt, for joining me on the last two weeks of episodes to put these together and research a very thorough topic. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hope uh, it wasn't too difficult for you, and maybe we'll hear your voice on some future stuff with History's B-Side, if I can rope you into it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see what happens. (laughs) You guys can follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at History's B-Side. You can also send us your feedback, suggestions, comments, whatever you want to say, by emailing us, historiesbside at gmail.com, or support the show and learn more about it on our website, historiesbside.com. Thanks for so much for listening in, and we'll talk to you next week. Histories Bside is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Histories B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your host, Philip Hall, and my co-host today, Matt Hughes. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.